Welcome to the RAQA Cafe, a conversational podcast with a couple of hosts that spend each episode talking about regulatory affairs and quality assurance topics. NAMSA is happy to bring the RAQA Cafe to you, where each episode features NAMSA consultants and their experiences. Be sure to visit NAMSA at namsa.com for more information and access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to RAQA Cafe, a NAMSA MedTech podcast. This is episode four, the role of software in healthcare. Part two, a focus on in vitro diagnostics. We bring into this conversation two regulatory experts in in vitro diagnostics, Sonia Lecce and Duan Threets. Sonia and Duan have been with NAMSA for over four years. Sonia is a principal regulatory consultant in in vitro diagnostics and has been an industry leader for over 22 years. Her global regulatory experience brings a broad understanding of the role of software in IVDs, and she has successfully helped bring numerous new products to market. Duan is a senior regulatory consultant in in vitro diagnostics and has been in the industry for over 19 years. In addition to Duan's IVD knowledge, he is also an expert on labeling and UDI regulatory requirements. Linford and I are very excited to have them here today, and we appreciate you listening into our conversation. Hey, Rich, we're back again. Episode four. Welcome to the RQA Cafe. We have two wonderful guests, Rich, for us today. They're going to teach me all about the IVD space, define the term IVD, so we actually know what, what it means. But yeah, Rich, welcome. How, how are you doing today? Doing good, Linford. So episode four, it's exciting. And you're not the only one who's going to be learning about IVD. So I, I've dabbled in it, but uh, I'm glad we've got two experts in the room today because you know, it's, I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be considered an expert <laughs> by any means. So I'm really excited to have Duan and Sonia with us today. So thanks for joining us. You guys are coming from what, Chicago and in, in Houston. So I'm sure very similar weather patterns for both of you today. <laughs> <laughs> More similar than you think, Rich. More similar than you think. We're actually, We're actually getting there. What we call a cold front here in Houston right now. So we have a balmy 30 degrees here, so <laughs> it's, it's nice for January. I'll take it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We're at 55, so, but this is just coming off of 70 degree, 70 degree weather. In January, lucky. January. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, All right. So what are you drinking, Linford? All right. So today, you know me, I love my teas. You know, last yeah. time I think I had juice, but today I have a lemon tea. So lemon herbal tea. Some brown sugar. Try to be healthy today. Um, but yeah, lemon tea. What about yourself, Rich? So first off, one of Linford's dirty secrets is he doesn't drink coffee. And I don't know many functional adults that can do that anymore. So I myself have a double espresso oat milk latte that I made myself. Unfortunately, I made it like a half an hour before this call and let it sit. So it probably needs a good warm up. But we're going to drink what I have here. So, <laughs> what about you, Sonia? What do you have? I've got a water in glass. Okay. <laughs> is it tap water? Is it uh, filtered? Is it? Uh, it is filtered water in glass. I, I kind of I bought a bunch of these on Amazon about I don't know four or five years ago, and so every night I'll fill them up, and in the day I'll try to plow through them. And it's just my little corner of the earth that I'm not, you know, contributing plastic to. Good, good. And what about you, Duan? 
I am now drinking good old filtered H2O. I had my Dunkin' hazelnut coffee earlier before, prior to this. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I listen, I love Dunkin' Donuts coffee. French vanilla, hazelnut, original. I, I just, I love it. You should move no. to like the Boston area. I mean, that's the <laughs> capital of Dunkin'. Oh, this is, I didn't know that. <laughs> it is. A, it's like, you know, they say Starbucks is on every corner. No, in here, it's Dunkin' and it's on every street. Really? Dunkin's across the street from itself. It uh, is across the street. Wow. Okay. Yeah. They're not our sponsors, by the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, today's conversation is talking about software, but software from the spin from the IVD world. And, you know, both of these areas of healthcare are actually relatively new to, you know, increased regulations and increased scrutiny, I would say, and probably the two fastest growing areas in healthcare. So both the IVD world and and the software world is really where we're seeing a lot of products coming to market. So we wanted to bring the two of you on board to just have a conversation about, you know, what you've seen, where do you think it's going? What are your experiences? And, you know, the, I think the very first question, and I'm sure some of the audience clearly knows the answers, but there might be audience members that, uh, you know, the five people that listen to this, probably my parents, you know, don't, <laughs> you know, don't know what IVDR or IVD is. Sorry, I always add the R now because that's what we're all thinking about. But, you know, what is what is IVD and how would you compare it to, you know, regular state-of-the-art medical devices? And Sonia, if you want to go ahead and answer. Yeah, I can dig into that a little bit. I mean, I, again, I'm not giving you a word for word from the guidance or from the CFR, but I can definitely tell you that IVDs are in vitro diagnostics. A lot of people, when I tell them that, they think, oh, IVDs, oh, you're doing such a wonderful thing for people who can't have children. That's not what that is. IVDs are in vitro diagnostics, and it's typically a, a specimen that can be taken, that can be sampled from a patient, a person, a, you know, a someone, or even it can even be in like whole blood products, like blood bags, and, and that can be also sort of diagnosed or enumerated. And there is a vast array of uh, IVDs. So. My main background has been in oncology and infectious disease and hematology, which is like basically enumeration for the result to be sort of ascertained by a physician. Like they would look at the numbers that are coming out from a hematology report, types of cells, RH factors, things like that, and then they can make a determination. So it's really not technically diagnosing anything. It's quantifying. So again, there's a huge array. And I would say software in relationship has always been a part of IVDs for me. I mean, I've been in IVDs since like 2002, 2003, so almost over 20 years in the business of IVDs specifically, not med device, not anything else. And my touch with software in IVDs was always as a part of a system. So an, an IVD diagnostic, like I said, happens outside of the body. So it's typically a sample that's processed in some sort of a way, prepped, put through a prep an assay that's run on an instrument that has a software that has a readout that has a report so it's this long string of products and things but software was definitely a component of that and it did need to be 
on point so that all the other work that was being done and everything else that was involved would not be wasted or not be, you know, it would be appropriately a part of the product. And so validation of software in, in my perspective from even 20 years ago has been, you know, paramount kind of out in the front to be, you know, like Abbott, when I was working with Abbott, it was do it right the first time. Okay. So it would have to be that, you know, software and everything else, all the components. It was another component. Okay. So we often hear the terms software in a medical device and software as a medical device. Am I correct in thinking that an IVD would almost always be software in a medical device? Like, or are there IVD? Is there the possibility of having IVD product that's software as a medical device? I've never, I honestly, yes. I've, I've never thought about yes. that. Yeah. yeah. There is. There's an entire guidance governing that. Now, more recently, now that things have been geared toward AI and applications and algorithms and, you know, software that is in non, you know, I'm talking typical meaning 20 years ago, but non-typical devices, which wouldn't be like an analyzer system or a platform, it would be like a handheld or a chip reader or something like that. So there is software standing alone, being sold separately and validated separately and, you know, submitted separately. So yes, it can be a separate. I would say to make it more intuitive, you know, just for the audience. I mean, anytime you think about software as a medical device, just think about your smartphone, your smartwatch. I mean, this thing right here, not too long ago, you know, the Apple Watch was approved as a medical device. I mean, what's that, about five years ago? So, yeah, laptops, computers, things like that, right? Yeah, if you if you just want kind of like that simple example, yeah, I, w- I would say stuff like that. You know, it's, it's interesting to me with just talking about software is that what I think I've seen in my experience with dealing with, with clients is that oftentimes they're either software developers that are getting into the medical device industry, like I'm sure with what's happened with Apple, or they're medical device manufacturers trying to develop software, right? And it's very rare that you find somebody who's got experience in both. Those are almost kind of the unicorns in our industry. It's kind of the same way, you know, maybe 10 or, 10 or so years ago when we started to create combination devices where we started you know, putting drug eluding stints together and things like that, where it was hard to find somebody who had the pharmacy background or pharmaceutical pharmacy, <laughs> wrong, wrong industry, pharmaceutical and, and a medical device and figuring out, okay, how do we regulate and how do we manage these devices? Well, I think, you know, we, we've started to get an understanding of that. And I think that's more established now, but I think that's where we're at now with software and in vitro diagnostics in that these are two fairly newly regulated environments. I mean, there's always been regulations, but the fact that you're you're now putting your peanut butter in my chocolate and you're putting my chocolate in my, your peanut butter. Oh, you know, I think that's where we're at. Yeah. yeah. And then there's, yeah, yeah. yeah there's standalone. So, so interesting. You know, so you, you guys realize, I mean, none of us ever want to think that we're the industry expert, but if you think about it, I mean, there's not a lot of people out there that know what you guys know or the combination of information that you know. So, so we're glad we have you. <laughs> and yeah, and building and building on that thought as the expert. So, for example, if someone was to come to you with their IVD product or device, right? What is the first step that you would do as a regulatory consultant? Like, what would you look at? Like, what's your regulatory planning process at a high level? Like, what information would you like to know 
to understand what their device is about and how that device may or may not work? Most of the time, like my approach is, and again, everything I know, I pretty much learned from Sonia, right? Me and Sonia have been working together for years. <laughs> so, you know, she, she's one of many people who have taught me different ropes in approaching and helping a client. But I, I think one of the first steps is to see where the client is at. A lot of times they have like really good ideas. All these people are smart, right? But there's a difference between, you know, a phrase that me and Sonia use quite often is the difference between being very science smart and then development savvy, right? And a lot of times you get these science smart clients, but they're not necessarily development savvy, right? And, and knowing how to bring that entire, you know, device into market and uh, as a whole, right? And so we just try to find out most of the time the approach is where are you at, right? Are you at concept, you know, just basic development? Are you at phase of testing, you know, where you're doing some analytical testing? You know, are you to the part where you are even ready to, you know, get in front of the FDA to have discussions about getting your product on market? And most times, I have to say, it, since my tenure, most times what we see is that they always have a component or more than components where it shows them that, hey, they're not really ready yet. But we're going to help you get there. We'll help you get there. And it's fine. We just, it's, it's really some, most times we're proposing a reality check for our clients to say, yeah, it's good, but it ain't that good. And a lot of times we, we get in front of them and they, and they be drinking their own Kool-Aid, right? Because again, these people are very science savvy. They think they got the latest and greatest thing, right? Since mm -hmm. sliced bread. And so, and that's cool. I, I want you to be sold on your, on, on what you're developing. I mean, um, you know, it's a really good point. I mean, you're right. We are constantly interacting with brilliant people, but nobody knows how to do everything. And, you know, oftentimes it's their first foray into this highly, highly regulated environment. And so we're here to help navigate those pathways and identify gaps because no matter how well you know your product, it's always is beneficial to have, you know, an independent set of eyes looking at yourself before you hand it to someone like, you know, the FDA or a notified body. So. It always goes back to the phrase that, you know, my dad taught me when I was young was that, you know, play to your strengths, delegate your weaknesses. I do a lot of delegation. <laughs> <laughs> as but, we uh, are, Rich, as we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we, yeah. we do get a lot of outside of the U.S. and in, in, inside of the U.S. developers or, de you know, those that are focused toward development and want to commercialize. And I, I think... In my mind, like I try to understand where is the core sort of drive, what's the driver of this product? And by that, I mean, what was their market study on the prevalence of the disease and or the problem or, you know, how have they done their market studies to see where the needs are, number one? Because although FDA doesn't want to know on a commercial level, they do want to know on a public health level what benefit and what clinical benefit this is going to have uh, to the general public. I mean, it can be even looked at in a global sense, you know, not just the U.S., but FDA just happens to, and FDA, it's not FDA alone that has a very strict, you know, regulating body anymore. Now we're seeing that arise in Europe. We've already seen that in Brazil, where Brazil was even tighter than the U.S. Oh, you know, we've always seen that in Japan. 
We have always seen like internal testing requirements in China. And so it's not just the FDA or, and there's really no quick fix. I think developers, I encourage them to step back and say, okay, what's the driver of your product? How are your market studies done? Where do you want this commercialized? That's the question number one. And then number two, what is your product? Do you know exactly what your product is? Who is it for? Where does it start? Where does it stop? Those kind of questions are things that I I would ask, meaning, you know, is it for everyone? Is it for people that are at a certain place in the disease? And then the third thing that developers, it would be very important for them to look at the risks involved. Because the FDA and other regulating bodies are looking at products from a risk-benefit perspective, they really should stop and say, okay, if this diagnosis correctly, this could happen. If this diagnosis incorrectly, this could happen. Uh, We saw a lot of that backlash and I think damage from the COVID products, the EUAs, that were not completely validated. They were on an emergency level of regulation and the false negatives were out there. We all know it. I mean, it's public knowledge now, so it's easy to say. And it's not any particular developer. Many of the products that were out there were either by, you know, if you're a layperson taking a sample and it's not a good sample and it's being tested in hand and you're getting a little readout like a pregnancy test and it says no, then you're going to run around and say, I'm fine. It said no, when in fact it was positive. Or, you know, I had a lot of people call me during that time and I, I didn't think, I didn't know what an EUA was when this whole thing started. Now I do a little too much, but people were calling me during the whole process saying, well, the line's really faint. I think it's probably on its way out. I was like, no, you're positive. You're positive. So <laughs> these kind of things happened. And um, risk versus benefit is, um, you know, what if the reader is looking at it as a maybe that's not a choice and that's not an option. And those things need to be very, very crystal clear. So there is a risk in that. There's a benefit in knowing, but there's a risk in reading it wrong, not knowing, bad sample, all those things. And that is up to the developer. That's their responsibility to look at it from every which angle. If the buffer is expired, if there's, you know, something denatures in the process or, you know, it has to be looked at from every which way. Yeah. Well, and, and I was going to say, Rich, just for the audience, EUA, emergency use authorization, Sorry. just to make sure they're all the same. But I know it's reg. <laughs> Sorry, apologies. Folks, yeah. We actually use a lot of these terms. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Sorry, Rich, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say with, Talking about the you know the rapid testing panels, I actually listened to a bit the other day where they were talking about how you know these rapid panels have existed for the flu for a long time, but it was never the recommendation to use rapid panels to detect flu. It's it's not uh, I forget what body, but then they did recommend it for COVID. You know when we were dealing with the pandemic and the the interviewer asked, well, the, why the difference and. And the answer was, well, it comes down to the risk benefit, you know, so the for flu, which is something that's been around, it's not something that has spiked, you know, to a point where we've inundated our hospitals where they, you know, people can't get treatment because of lack of lack of available resources. The benefit of relying on a rapid panel that might not be as reliable for many different reasons, oftentimes it's user, you know, collecting a sample. By somebody who's never used, you know, collected a sample versus going into a laboratory and having a trained person do it, you know, can very much influence the test results. And there's only so much validation you can do, right, to when you deal with, uh, you know, your user population. 
But you you hit my favorite term. I mean, I'm, I'm always about the risk benefit. I mean, that's where you should always start because that should drive everything. But um, and I think that's where I get a lot of questions in IBDR is that you know you know how do how do we identify the risks associated with our product? And it's it's always a challenge for me because you know I could look at anything and show you how it could cause death, but. <laughs> I can take a pencil. What does your product exactly do? Yep. What do you want it to do? And then you evaluate the risks because we find a lot of developers that are not, as Duan said, you know, in in their wisdom, think that they know what they want the product to do or how they want it to behave on market. There are clear cut sort of lines and, and that need to be drawn because whatever you're claiming in that intended use, you've got to be ready to back that up. And then, you know, if you're able to back that up, that's great and wonderful and fine. But then when it gets into the user's hands, what are the risks, even if it's a physician, even if it's a healthcare professional, what are the risks in using the product itself, getting the sample? I mean, we, you know, previously I worked on getting on a um, FFP, which are formulin fixed paraffin embedded samples, which come from a tumor sample, like cross-section. So there is a high risk in getting one of those, like from if someone has lung cancer, you really only go in one time and you do not go in again because then there's an extremely high risk of damage to the patient. So, so those kind of things, they would have to assess the specimen itself. Is it just a blood draw? Is it a urine sample? Those are low risk. And then product performance risk and then the actual diagnostic risk. So there's levels of risk too that need to be evaluated. Mm-hmm. And I think something that you mentioned too earlier, Sonia, you mentioned, you know, in your time working with IVDs, you know, software has always been a part of it, right? It's, it's not something that's going to be separate. So for you, when you hear like software lifecycle management, or they talk about like usability or IT security, you know, like what are some things that you like to let your clients aware or made aware of? So they understand when they're doing that development or in that process, these are things that they should like consider. Is there any like ideas or suggestions that you give your clients? Yeah, so I know with earlier PCR products and the software that came with them, and this is earlier, I believe the guidance has changed on this, but every time you made an update to your software, which was like every other day, you would have to resubmit an entire submission showing that it still works with the whole system. Now, I think there are abbreviated ways of doing it. I think the submission pathway is a little bit different because FDA doesn't, they don't want a whole submission you know, every six months, software updates very often. So those are some implications to think about. There are some other software, as far as like, is it out of the box software? Is it customized software? How is it being validated? And I think the newest thing that I learned within the last four years or so is data quality of what's going into that software to be quantified, calculated, whatever's happening, where that data is coming from. Is it consistent? Is it secure? Is it, there are many questions that go with that. And again, I I don't have the guidance in front of me and I'm sure there are several guidances that govern this, but just from a a common sense point of view, if you want something in a recipe to come out with a nice cake, then you should have good flour and good eggs, not like good flour and bad eggs. And, you know, it's not going to make a good cake. So it's that kind of an idea. I know it's simple. That makes sense. Yeah. And then the final question, sorry, So back to your cake analogy, even with that, you know, I know my favorite cake in the world is German chocolate cake, right? My mom knows to make it, right? But normally you let your 
it's custom to have your eggs in the refrigerator, right? Well, before my mom bakes that cake, she lets her eggs sit out a day. So there's temperature and all that stuff like that, right? Because you don't want the eggs to be a certain, you know, have to have a certain consistency and, and mess up the, the cake, right? So again, it goes back to what Sonia said about, you know, actually the specimen, right? How long it's, you know, the temperatures of it, you know, the specimen, you know, the, you know, the quality of it and how the data is being spit out that the software is getting, you know, all that affects everything. And that all, you know, goes back to Rich's favorite thing, risk, right? You know, and so I know when developers are developing software as a medical device, right? There are a series of questions that they have to ask themselves in terms of risk and engaging low to high risk, right? Low, moderate, and and high risk, right? And so again, those all all those things have to be considered. Yeah, and I was going to add to so you know for us, you know, we talk about all these things that they should they should consider that they should do. But in your experience, what are some things you've seen from developers, right, that have been good? Like did they come with their documentation in the right order? Did they have the proper testing? What are some examples they could give us on? Hey, I work with client X, and I liked how they did X Y Z. Well, for me, sometimes a client coming in and being open to knowing what they don't know. Again, we get, uh, you know, I go back to the type of clients we get sometimes, right? Some of them are very smart. So if you get some that are very smart, it can be kind of a tug of war and having conversations with them to get them to understand. Yeah, you, you know that part, but you don't know this part. And I'm trying to help you understand that part. We get clients in that's just ready and they're, and they're like, hey, look, we got it this far, but we don't know what we don't. We've never delivered any So teach us. Being open to be taught, you know, that's that's great. And, and, and sometimes, you know, we do get those clients. Ever so often we get those clients in that they really have all their ducks in a row. And it just makes our, our jobs very easy and they're very transparent. I mean, that's a that's the a great thing, the transparency part, right? This is where we're at. However, we're stuck here on next steps, or we don't know if we have some gaps, right? Gaps in, you know, the process, you know, in our quality management. And that's a whole nother thing, right? But gaps here in, in our approach for testing, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And so when you're open, when you're an open book like that, I mean, it's just, it just makes me and Sonia's job as consultants really, really easy. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I think openness to learn and you know we don't think we have a whole heck of a lot of expertise but it's for sure it, it is more than yeah it's it's more than what a new developer might know so i think openness to we understand that developers are also under the gun of timelines and of goals and of funding and and you know just their budgets we understand all of that and we understand that there are sometimes higher ups that are, you know, having projects move along more quickly than possibly they can. But we do appreciate clients that where we have had these clients that will accordingly listen to realistic timelines, activities that need to be done, things to be considered. We had two clients last year that wanted to aim for a breakthrough designation. Breakthrough designations for IVDs are those products that will change public health. They're cutting edge. They will, they will be like first line, potentially. And FDA likes to see these. 
but both of these clients had already submitted a breakthrough designation request. FDA had said no, but there is a stipulation where they get, I think, 30 days, 10 days or 30 days. I'm not, I'm, I don't want to misquote myself. Okay. But they get a time frame to respond. So they asked us as NAMSA, what do you guys think? And both of them did this, which I very much appreciate. They said, if it is not appropriate, we'll pull it back. And if it is appropriate, please help us to push it forward. And for both of them, actually, it was, it was not appropriate for them to go on. It, instead of being, you know, pushing back on us or insisting that we do it, they very gracefully accepted the fact that, okay, this is not the right time for us. We have a lot more work to do. Thank you, NAMSA, and your expertise. You know, and so that kind of thing was very encouraging to say, you know, as Duan said, clients who are willing to listen, clients who are willing to learn, and then, you know, perhaps come back to us and go on. You know, it, it's, a, it's a very encouraging kind of a relationship. Yeah. I have to ask, this is something new to me. I don't know. So when you are looking to try to do something like use a breakthrough designation, what does that do for the company or the product? Is it, does it put it on a fast track or is it? Yes. So again, though, these are those products, diagnostics that would potentially be changing to the current fabric of diagnostics. And FDA does encourage these. The unfortunate thing is a lot of them are not ready or they're not in that place yet. The assumption is that they would be, if the concept is there, yes, they will be sort of encouraged to come in for pre-submission, early collaboration as soon as possible. FDA will know who they are. The other, the downside to that is that there's anywhere from a, I believe the maximum is like a 40% acceptance rate at best. So anything downward from that is a denial or a sort of a, so, so if you look in, you can even Google what has been designated a breakthrough and there are very few handful. There are lots of requests of these new and cutting edge. Again, developers who are wonderful geniuses at what they're doing and they do have something that is, very cutting edge. We have we get the most interesting products you have ever imagined. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from like iris reading technology, blood sample as opposed to a tumor sample. I mean, it, it's like revolutionary what's going on. And if you look back in the last twenty years, it has been revolutionary. You don't have to have your you know lungs dug into anymore. You don't have to have you know your your brain dug into anymore. There, there are there are ways of capturing things like pre-cell DNA and lots of things that are not dependent on pathology and they're more confirmatory, they're less judgment call, they're more yes, no, you know, so things have changed. If you look at, and I won't give any numbers, but, you know, there are cancers that were death sentences not even 20 years ago, which are absolutely not that anymore. So things have changed in diagnostics tremendously. They have brought diagnostics to the forefront as a norm rather than an afterthought. So there, there have been things that have been done. And so breakthrough technology plays a part in that. And if the product is appropriate, we would, you know, this, that's a function that we have in IVD uh, at NAMSA here is that we would review a breakthrough designation request. It would have to supersede what is currently the point of, you know, care or the first line therapy, first line, sorry, diagnostic for this time and assure FDA that this will be even better over and beyond, and here's the proof why and how. Then FDA will consider it, 
And then funding is given to further develop that, you know, a funding, not by FDA, but, you know, whatever sources are. So oftentimes it's a company initiative that if you get breakthrough designation, you'll get your bonus, you know, you'll get the funding. <laughs> so a lot of- Well, and most importantly, you'll get the product to market, you know, and, and make a difference because <laughs> I think that's what we all want, right? We wanna, yes, yes. We want to see those new novel products, those groundbreaking therapies that, that make a big difference in our world. So. Yeah, there are, you know, like I said, I, w- I was just shooting off examples like, you know, fiber optic rather than venipuncture and Alzheimer diagnostic from blood, I mean, from, you know, uh, uh, biomarkers. So it's just phenomenal what's happening. And I think we are standing at like the turning point just because, you know, in the early 2000s when the genome was mapped, it changed diagnostics forever. Yeah. To add to Sonia's, you know, explanation on, on breakthrough, which was lovely, by the way, a lot of times what we see, too, with clients is that even if their product is just ahead of the class and all that and everything that Sonia explained, the FDA does put you on a fast track, right, into trying to get that product to market. However, you have to make sure that you warn your client, too, that, okay, they're going to put you on that fast track. You have to be ready to keep up with the pace. And I mean, I, I just had this conversation with a client yesterday. It's like that fast track is is compared to like, you know, just being on the highway, you know, and then all of a sudden you're on the Audubon with, you know, just the, the regular approval print, you know, route, you know, pre-submission and all that stuff, you know, the regular approval route being just the highway. The fast track through breakthrough, once you do get that designation, is the Autobahn. And a lot of times a lot of clients, a lot of developers can't keep up with that, right? It takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of testing. And if you if they're gonna put you on that, you have to be ready. You have to be mm-hmm. ready. Thank you guys so much for your time today. We heard about baking a cake. We heard about, you know, the fast track for the cars, you know. I like the fact that you guys give us practical examples and stuff that we can like think about, you know, like your your smartwatch or your computer, your laptop, right? Think about how that software is embedded, how it's going to be used, especially when we talk about IVDs. Rich, I have to say it again. We have to bring them back one more time, Rich. We have to bring them back <laughs> one more time. I like to get them on the spot now to like convince <laughs> them that you know it's recorded, they're here, they have to come back and just dive a little bit deeper based on the questions that we are going to get from our five people that you mentioned earlier, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> We're shooting for six. We're shooting six. For okay, six. But seriously, I'm Sonia, the one, thank you so much. We really enjoy this. We really like your insight and please come back again and let's teach us more about what you do. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'd be happy to be happy to. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for having us. Oh yeah. Anytime. You guys are awesome. Thank you again for listening to another RAQA cafe podcast. We hope you found the discussion on software and IVDs interesting and hope you'll join us for future podcasts. At our next podcast, we bring Jack Rizdahl to our conversation to talk to us about compliance pitfalls when setting up animal studies. Linford and I are excited to have him with us, and don't forget to bring your favorite beverage as you listen in.